All right, so the book of Proverbs chapter 13. This is an unusual passage that we looked at because if you're, again, familiar with Proverbs, you might know that when he starts on a particular topic or he says something, he might continue on that thought line for a verse, maybe two, maybe three, but there's not a whole lot more because the Proverbs, he'll say something, but he won't elaborate much on it. He just makes statements and they're, they're wisdom. They're filled with meaning and everything else, but he doesn't elaborate. So what we've noticed on Sunday mornings as we go through Proverbs is that we can look you know, if we, if we understand how we study the Bible, we will study the Bible to say, okay, we make our observations. And then we make the interpreting of what those words mean. And then we apply them. What we've done with Proverbs, and I found it to be so much fun to prepare to do, is we look at the observation through Solomon and his writings, but we're able to look to the New Testament for the application. Because we find in the New Testament, these ideas are expanded immensely and of course they would be, because think about what's happened since Solomon's writing. When Solomon writes the things that he says, then he's only able to look at the history that he knows to that time. So he knows from the creation through Abraham, he knows the time of the, the sojourn that they had and their time of, of slavery in Egypt and coming back into the land. They know how people did what was right in their own eyes and they did through the judges. And the fact that he is a king is something that God didn't want them to do in the first place. What do you think that would do to your psyche? Yeah, I'm the king of Israel, but God didn't even want me to exist. He wanted my people to be a God-governed people, and yet here I am. But that's his history. Now think about us. We've seen that. We've seen the kings, and we've seen it come to an end. We've seen the time where God went silent through the prophets, and we've seen the time when he started speaking again through John the Baptist, and then we see Jesus. We see what he has done, and then we see all the things that happened after that in the first century and all the writings that we have. Ours is all hindsight. So we are able to glean from what the New Testament writers had to say on this, and it's expansive. Our text tonight is uh, starting at verse 13 in Proverbs 13, and we're going to run through verse 18. So let me just read it, and then we'll go back and we will look at the verses in particular, but then I would like to take you to the New Testament and we'll say, great. Therefore, since we understand what Solomon was saying, what does it mean to us and how do we make application of what we've learned? So in verse 13, we read this. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn away one from the snares of death. Good understanding gains favor but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every, pro, uh, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. All of these, do you notice, they all have something in common? They have in common the idea of instruction, but where would instruction come from if not directly from God? And if it's going to be coming directly from God, it's going to be coming through his word, correct? So even if we can say the Holy Spirit revealed something to me personally, we can also say, and if it wasn't in the word of God that I could prove it, it's not from the Holy Spirit, right? So that's when I always hear these people, you know, talking about these revelations that they got from God that I'm sorry, I can't find that chapter and verse. You're out of your mind. You may be hearing from a spirit, 
just not the Holy Spirit. And it might sound 90% accurate, but the other 10% is deadly. So the Bible is our total, absolute, complete authority. Now, Proverbs is written to us in the way of contrasts. It is this extreme and that extreme, or it is this, this direction versus that direction, usually between good and evil, wisdom and foolishness. That's why you notice that these words, I would never call them recycled because he's just coming back to a, a series of observations and how will they affect the righteous versus the evil? How will they, you know, your extremes? So let's look through them. Verse 13, the first one that tells us this, he or whoever it is that despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. There's no question what he's talking about here. But think about how much was still to be revealed. See, at this point, none of the, the, the chronicles, the kings, Samuel, the prophets, none of that stuff was written. None of it. None of, obviously, the New Testament was written. So imagine how much more God had revealed after he made this observation. Basically, he has the law in his hands. So think about what he's able to use as his, his guide. Because, again, this is a man who is under the law. Now, we are a people who have been freed from the bounds and the bonds of the law, but at the same time, we look at them as, as a, a very, very important way that God had used to direct his people. Think about what Paul says when he talks to the Galatians, and he says, look, if there was a way that man could be made right before God, it'd be the law. But yet, in that same chapter in Galatians, he's basically saying, but the law was only intended to bring us to Jesus to, for this very simple reason. I can't keep the law. And then God says, I know you can't keep the law. That's why Jesus is here. I get it. Okay, great. The law requires of me perfection and then gives me the list of what those things would be. And I am immediately reminded that I am incapable, which is great because it makes me say, now what? So the law would basically say, you've got a sin problem. Okay, great. What do I do about it? I can't help you with that is what the law would tell you. Stack it over there in the corner. We'll cover it for now. That's the law. In the person of Jesus, he shows up and says, let me rip the cover off of that so I can remove it. And now we can come to that relationship that we now have with the Lord. How do I know all of this? Because the Bible tells me this. Well, Chris, are you brilliant? No. I just believe what I read. And God confirms such things because it is said over and over and over again. But how often do we encounter people that we would say, here's what the word of God says. People are going to have one or two reactions. The believer is going to say, yeah, that's what God said. He communicates to me. He wants me to know him. And so he has gone to great lengths to communicate to me. Praise the Lord. I'm not left alone. That's our reaction, which is what we see here in the second part of verse 13, where it tells us, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. There is a promise to the believer. Be obedient to him. And the day will come when your ebb and flow, your up and down, your righteousness, and then those times when you fail and all that, that up and down is going to be done. Because the reward is that these bodies of sin and death will be put off. We will be received into glory, never to have a problem with sin and corruption. We have face-to-face -face fellowship with God. That's the promise. How about the people that you say, here's what the word of God says. I don't want to hear it. That's for you Bible-thumping Jesus freaks. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, they're addressed in the first part of verse 13 because it says that he who despises the word will be destroyed. Is that not what the scripture tells us happens for them? 
the people who will reject the mercy of God are going to have to deal with the consequences of that. It's very simple. How about verse 14? The law of the wise is a fountain of life. So the law that is given by God, the person that is operating in wisdom, it is one thing to have knowledge. Wisdom is a different thing. We all understand that, right? I always use the example back home. Does anybody need to debate whether or not fire is hot? Now, for you philosophy people, well, it's not actually the fire that's hot. And it's, oh, stop. Just me. <laughs> Let's just let's let's assume that we can all agree fire is hot. Do you need to put your hand over a flame to prove it? No, wisdom would dictate I don't need to do that. I know it's hot, therefore wisdom would tell me don't put your hand over it to prove it. Because then you've got to deal with blisters. Okay, so that being the case, the law of the wise is a fountain. It is as though it is a life-giving spring. It's a fountain of life. By contrast, and it is, or I'm sorry, because it will have this effect, it will turn one away from the snares of death. So as we look at these verses, the, the verse 13 is kind of the state of mind. Verse 14 is kind of the effect after you've been exposed to the word of God. Here's the effect that it will have on you personally. Now in verse 15, it says, good understanding gains favor. Now the understanding, again, doesn't happen because of us. The understanding is that God says something and gives us direction to understand it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus promised. Chapter 16 of John, I think it's around verse 12, that he, the Holy Spirit, will come to you and he will lead you in all truth. 12 and 13, I believe, is, that, is where that is in John. Um, so the promise would be that God would give us the word and it is why to the believer, they're not just words on a page. It's not literature. It is words of life. Now, the world doesn't see it that way. But remember, they're being contrasted by the believer here. The world looks at it one way, we look at it another. So verse 15 tells us, good understanding gains favor. And the question that it begs is, favor with whom? Favor with God. And if it extends to other people, great. But the favor is, first of all, given by God, because he's the one who gives understanding. And people who are obedient to that end up reaping the favor of it. Now it says in verse 15, the second part, but by contrast, the way of the unfaithful is hard. It is difficult and it is continual. So here's the benefit versus no benefit to coming to the word of God. Each one of these verses kind of builds on the thought. Verse 16 tells us, every prudent. Now, prudent would just be kind of shrewd, thoughtful, deliberate, whatever word you want to use there. So the person, everyone who is prudent, prudent man or woman, acts with knowledge. Now, again, that's knowledge given by God. Wisdom would be taking that knowledge and then acting accordingly. It's pretty simple. The second part of it says, but a fool lays open his folly. So a prudent man is not going to just do the first thing that comes to mind. He's going to spend the time of being shrewd and deliberate. What are my actions going to do? God would not have me to act rashly. He would want me to be deliberative and think about my actions before I do them because everything that I do reflects upon him. How about the person that's just prone to fits of anger and rage and reaction and all the rest of it? Well, that's the fool. And you won't have trouble figuring out who that guy is because his folly will demonstrate that. Now, here's what's funny. When you read these things, if you're reading them to say, let me think of these in practical sense and let me see if I can think of examples of this. Half the time when it comes to the folly, you can probably remember things you did. Isn't that funny? No, it's not funny. It's frustrating. Yes, right? <laughs> But you, you see the principles laid out here. They're very easy for us to understand because we have 
we have an experiential knowledge of seeing how these things work. And remember, we're only looking at them through Solomon's eyes. We haven't even scraped the surface of what the New Testament says about these things. Because our mission in this world is considerably different from that one that Solomon had. The believers were of a nation, and their interaction with the surrounding nations was pretty limited. Ours knows no borders, knows no boundaries, because the gospel is the good news to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So our scope, yeah, we serve the people of this body. I do back at, at home, but that's not it. Our belief and all the rest of it is not just for you Sunday morning and Thursday night and whatever other ministry nights you have. That's just when you're among the brethren. And it is one of the things, and I know, I know Xavier and I agree on this, the church is primarily for the believers. But we live in a culture now that the church is now supposed to be bringing in and entertaining the unsaved and everything is geared towards the unsaved. Well, what about the people in the sanctuary that already know the Lord? If every message is tailored towards the unbeliever, you're going to have a very anemic church in the word because it is supposed to be the equipping of the saints happening among the church. This is where we get together to believe like-minded. Look at the early church. What they did was outside the doors. So when you look at what it says about that God gave to the church, he gave them apostles, he gave them evangelists and prophets, and then pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Look at the early church. Where was the work of the ministry in the evangelism? Where was that taking place? Outside the doors. So they weren't trying to make the seats comfortable and make every message easy to understand and evangelical because that was being done outside. God was adding to the church those that were being saved and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine first and then in all the other things because without the doctrine, without the things that are taught, there's no context for why we do anything, right? So as we look through these passages in, in Proverbs, they make perfect sense to us in our understanding. But boy, when you start to peel back the layers of it in the New Testament, it takes on such a different scope. So again, verse 16, every prudent or shrewd, deliberative man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly because, of course, there's no deliberation. There's no shrewdness. Just whatever comes to mind is said. Now, there is the action and the difference between the foolish and, and the prudent. Verse 17 tells us a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Now, back home, since the church knows exactly what we're doing every Sunday morning, I've thrown it out there to them a few times and said, hey, when I'm, right, when I'm reading this passage in Proverbs, how many of you guys are already skipping ahead and thinking, I know where he's going to go when we get to the New Testament? This is one of those verses that it's something's tipped here. Do you guys see where we'll be going with this one? What does it say? A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Ambassadors. You think we'll go to the ambassador passage out of uh, 2 Corinthians? Ah, oh, you're a smart bunch. Yes, we will. <laughs> so verse 17, the message or the messenger, what do they bring? When that message is brought, what is the resulting effect to the hearer? Because that's addressed here. Now in verse 18, it says, Now, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. So once again, where does correction come from? 
Think of what Paul says. We won't be going here, but think of what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given, right? It's by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for what? Yeah. For <laughs> It is profitable for what we believe, our doctrine, reproof and correction, instruction and righteousness. Why? So that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So we understand by looking at this at verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. The Bible constantly corrects us, and I thank God for it. Is it painful? You bet. Pleasant? Not hardly. Useful? Uh-huh. Why? Because I won't keep putting my hand over a fire. I like to be corrected. And let's remember this too, because this is a big debate going on in the church. Who are you to say who's right and who's wrong? Who are you to offer correction? Me? I'm nobody. But if the Bible addresses it and I need to remind you of it, get over it. It's the Bible that says it. And if nobody has told you thus far, well, consider yourself warned. And think of all the things that Paul did and everything that Paul wrote. Take a look at any of his epistles and show me where you will not find some manner of correction in there. Go to Corinthians and goodness, man. Between those two books, that's a church that needed a whole lot of correction. But if God cares, he corrects. Those whom he loves, he chastens, right? Is what the scripture tells us. Great. Now, so poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. The rebuke, remember, if you're regarding the rebuke and it's something that God wants said, if there's going to be honor comes from it, there are two things implied. The person bringing the rebuke is doing so based upon the word of God and not opinion. And secondly, the person who hears it recognizes the source and walks accordingly. So all of these are just easy to understand. They're implied. You know, we're able to take away from the text and it's easy for us to understand. Now, with all of that said, when we look at the New Testament, and we want to say, okay, therefore, I get it. Verse 18 kind of helps us with the idea of correction and, and what happens, what comes from it. I want to look at a few verses, and I've jotted them down here. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, because I want to look at how we then react when people don't want to hear what we have to say. Okay? Because... I'm sure we have all been there. Usually it's because we think, you know, I'm going to preach to these people exactly what was preached to me when I got saved. And if I got saved from it, it'll work with these guys. So you almost can verbatim say what it was that you heard that turned you. And for whatever reason, they're just looking at you like the dog that's waiting for you to give them some food. They just kind of, you know, and they have no clue what you have just said. And you're thinking, what's wrong with these people? How is it that they cannot understand? Worse yet, like what we've seen, these people who reject, as what Solomon would say, the people who reject instruction, they become angry, sometimes provocative and belligerent, want to pick a fight, do all that kind of stuff. We've all had that, right? And isn't it an easy, just kind of a natural human thing to say, woe is me. I only wanted to, to minister to them for you, God, and look at how they reacted. Oh. Well, just remember what it was like at other times for other people. The idea of doing and saying maybe some of the things that you said would get you thrown in prison or even killed 
That day may come around again. It's happening in a lot of other places in the world. Being honest could end up being a death sentence. Just believing what you believe could be your last day. That's an amazing thing. Sometimes we forget. Well, what are we to do in those times when it seems like we've said the perfect thing and all we get is resistance and sometimes outright hostility and sometimes maybe even worse, maybe even threat or whatever else? Well, let's remember some things. Look at verse 3 of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 3 gives us our perfect example. We don't need to look to Paul. We don't need to look to Peter or James or John. We don't need to look to Solomon or David or Moses or Abraham or any of the rest of them. How about we go to the source? For consider him. We all know who the him is. And the consideration is, all right, something has gone on, maybe along the lines of what Solomon is saying. I've done the best that I can to minister to the people that God has put in front of me based upon the word of God. And what I have done is flawless. And yet all I get is hostility and threat or who knows what it may be. What do you do in those times? Maybe it's not going to go to that, that point of where you feel threatened or anything else, but the people just go, would you please shut up? I don't want to hear another word from you. I'm just sick and tired of listening to all of your droning on about this Jesus stuff. I'm done. Ever had that? And then you think, I'm so persecuted. <laughs> Verse 3, in those times, why don't you consider him? Him, Jesus, the one who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Is there ever discouragement in ministry? Anybody experienced it in the last week? Today? <laughs> okay, great. Then I would say to you, consider him. Consider him. You want the nice reset button when it comes to ministry? I'm so discouraged, Lord. And Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured what he endured. Such hostility. Lest you become disillusioned, wearied in your soul. Think of him. Verse 4 says, let's remember just what he had to do. You've never resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You've never had to go to the point where you were even put to death because you stood as a bulwark against it. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is spoken to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the, love, the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges everyone who receives him. Yeah, so sometimes that woe is me will be met by God saying, get a grip. If you think that you've had it rough, take a look at my son. And you know, by him doing that, do you realize how much of a correction that is? And you will walk away from that going, ow, like when you were kids. Same kind of thing. But God will do that so that we are able to come to some kind of a grips of saying, let me look at the big picture here. So he says this in verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening or correction, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you are not sons. Now, first of all, pay attention in verse 8. It says we've all been partakers of this. If you think, why is God being so harsh with me? I don't even know if you're paying attention to what's happening with everybody else. 
Maybe sometimes we become really self-centered. Why am I the only one that God's singling out? Really? Have you taken the time to talk to your brothers and sisters? Probably come to find out they're going through all the same stuff you are. But the devil's really good about trying to say, you're the only one going through this. Ever had that one? Nobody's ever had to deal with what I've had to deal with. Really? Expect a visit from the Lord on that one. Expect a visit. Because he will tell you, it's like what we hear from Paul when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10. Look, there's nothing that overtakes you that's not already common to man. Don't think that somehow you're in any ways unique. Again, when was the last time you were put to death for your faith? That's a pretty easy one because you're here tonight and you're alive. So, I mean, I already know the answer to the question. It's kind of rhetorical. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not more readily be in subjugation to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. What an amazing thing that is. Now, there may very well be times when God has to, if you will, in the figurative sense, takes you out to the woodshed spiritually. And do you realize that in those times, once you're able to recover from it, more than likely and probably not long thereafter, you're going to talk to somebody who needs to hear the same thing that God instructed you with. Isn't that amazing how that works? So it is one thing for us to be used in ministry, but we want to be able to relate to the people to whom we minister. We want to be able to share with them the things that God has shown to us. But that requires a few different things. That requires your back and forth and your interaction with the Lord, and that takes your time seeking Him in the Word, learning, growing, understanding, because without it, you have nothing to give but opinion. Verse 11 tells us this. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Hello, Captain Obvious. But it is painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, we all have probably experienced this multiple times. We do understand. When God is bringing us through that way of correction, sometimes it happens quickly because we don't resist. The problem is, is when we resist him and he's trying to give us correction. Isn't it funny how often we will do this with our own children? And at some point during the process, when they're just not getting it, say, how many times do I have to tell you this? <laughs> One of these days, wouldn't it be great if your kids say, about as often as God has to say the same thing to you? <laughs> oh, that's it. You're, you're grounded for eternity. <laughs> Go to the dungeon. I'm done with you. <laughs> but isn't it true? So easy to forget that Many of the same things we try to teach our kids, the Lord is trying to teach us exactly the same things. And he does so for one reason, not because he enjoys it, but because it brings and it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Because without it, we just have those kids in the supermarket screaming and yelling, running up and down the aisles. That would be us. God basically says, I'm going to stick you in the cart and stack a bunch of groceries on you so you can't move if you don't stop it. Get in line. Keep it together. We represent him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we have our example in the person of Jesus. Now there becomes this question of 
if we have him as the example, we have the word of God as our direction. So what then do we do in the way of going forward? How do we take it from here? God wants to deal with the inward man so that he's able to use the inward man outwardly. Both of these sections, there'll be in chapter four and in chapter five, give us that helpful understanding of it begins with this work of the heart that God has done in us. And without that, there's really nothing ultimately to give out. We know the importance of the heart and that God needs to have hold of that because he says out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So basically that's the spoken things, but any action, speaking is just one of many actions. So whatever it is that's going to be an action of the things that you do outwardly, whether it's speech or action, it's going to be predicated on a condition of the heart. What's the condition of the heart that we have towards the Lord? And that will tell you a lot about what goes on on the outside. It'll take away the pretense and then it will give you the ability to endure because it's easy to do something for a short amount of time. Look at the people who are able to do something as long as God gives them the task. They never become weary in it because what? God asked me to do this. For how long? Until it's over. When's that going to be? When it's over. When is that going to be? Has he told you? No, he hasn't. So what do you do? I continue on until he tells me otherwise. How cool is that? It takes us out of the process. Because frankly, especially if it's difficult, time's up. If I'm the one setting the clock... Fortunately, it is God who is the one who completes the work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look at verse 2. And I love this because in our application part of this, we want to first of all remember applying biblical, exegetical way of looking at the text. Who is Paul writing to? The saints at Ephesus. Okay, great. So what do we know about Ephesus? part of the pagan world. These people have come out of a hedonistic pagan culture and now they've come to this person of Jesus. Not a multitude of gods that just for some perverse reason love to mess with people's lives, but this is the true and living God who died on a cross for the sin of mankind and he loves you. So that's who he's writing to here. Now he's saying we. Includes himself in with it. He says, now we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Wow. Do you really catch what's been said there? Since we have been brought to him, we renounce what we were before. There is nothing left of that old man. Everything has been changed. So Paul is able to say, whether it is me, Paul, the Jewish man that was looking to destroy the church, or if it is you, the pagans, who used to serve the multitude of gods in your hedonism, you have come to the true and living God. And all of us have renounced, wherever it was that we came from, those hidden things of darkness. And now we are able to commend ourselves to everyone in the sight of God as the one who has done this work. Now, if you're able to say, Paul was writing to Corinth, I get it. God has preserved it these 2,000 years later to speak to the church in general. We don't know the things going on at, at, uh, at Corinth. Do we need to? Where do you live? Southern California. Let's just say it that way so I don't have to find out all the different cities. So I could say to you, 
you people of Southern California, have you? Let's read it and say this. If we, people of Southern California, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. We don't walk in the craftiness or in craftiness, nor do we handle the word of God in a deceitful manner. Oh, wow. So that means that you are the partakers of God's word because that is the only thing that you have to give to someone. That is all you have. So if that's the case, how is it that we handle the word? Because notice what he does in this is an implied warning. There are those who do those things. They do handle the word in a crafty manner. Why? Ulterior motives. If somebody wants to say, hey, you're preaching and you're ministering to me, what's your ulterior motive? Well, it's not an ulterior motive. Let me just tell you straight up what it is. I want you to walk with Jesus in a better way by knowledge of, of his word. Here's what he's revealed to me. I'm just sharing it with you. There's my ulterior motive. It's the worst kept secret on the planet. So, he says then in verse 3, speaking about our gospel and what it is of our good news or the good news that is our common heritage. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, will shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord and ourselves as bondservants for your sake. Now remember, he's talking about a lot of outward things because we're not necessarily preaching the gospel ordinarily to the church because the church is already saved. However, depending on what your ministry is, you may come in contact with the unsaved. And he's talking about those things. But let's remember our good news is not always just for the unsaved. It may be for the backslidden or the person who doesn't really know a whole lot. So if we hold back or reserve what they need to know, that is to their detriment and we are withholding something that we have no right to withhold. So we are to be familiar with God's word first and foremost. It is the, the most important thing that you handle in ministry, and there's not even a close second. Can we agree upon this? So whatever it is that you do in ministry, it is predicated initially, primarily in the word of God, because that is what you give to whoever is in front of you. You minister to them the word of God because it has the power to change lives, not your storytelling. So he goes on to say this. In verse 5, Say, I'll read it again. We did not preach ourselves, but rather, what do we preach? Jesus Christ the Lord. Ourselves, bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Great. These are marching orders for us. It starts on the inward, verse 2. It works in the outward, verses 3 to 6. You see, verse two is the work that God does by his word in us initially, giving us the ability to do the things outwardly. And he says a very similar thing in the next chapter. In chapter five, we have, let's just start at verse 12, inward, inward and outward. Starting at verse 12 in chapter five, it says, now we do not commend ourselves again to you Excuse me, but we, um, but we give opportunity to boast on our behalf. We give you a chance to, to uh, boast on our behalf that you may have an answer to those who boast in, uh, in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, 
it is for God. That means if, if people think we're crazy, there's a reason why. So remember again, how, how often have people looked at you and the things that you've said, they think that you're out of your mind. Okay. I would have thought at one time, there was a time in my life when if any of you would have come to me and ministered to me, I would have thought those people are out of their minds. Isn't that great? Because now the tables are totally turned. I'm one of those crazy people. I love this. For the love of Jesus compels us. Why? Because we judge this way, that if one died for all, then all are dead in him. Then all died. We, we have lost our identity as being ourselves. We are in him. He's going to return to this idea. At verse 15, he says, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let's remember we're ministering to people ordinarily who are probably younger in the faith than we are. If we understand these principles, this is what we want to pass along to the people in our charge. We want them to understand as we have understood. These are things that we should be convinced of. And if we are then convinced of them, we can speak with conviction about them. Now, how many of you guys know a guy named Terry Reynolds? Terry Reynolds. If you ever saw Chuck in his golf cart, Terry was the guy next to him. Tall guy, balding, that was Terry. Terry was kind of driving him around and everything else. Terry's now heading up Word for Today and all the rest. He's a good personal friend of mine. And I remember hearing him teach a Bible study. We had him come on out. He'd be embarrassed if I was telling you this. But he was teaching a Bible study at one of our men's retreats. And how many of you guys like to take detailed notes at a Bible study? Some of you? Okay. I am your total opposite. If I write several words, I am a distracted man. Seriously. I'm not the walk and chew gum dude when it comes to that kind of stuff. I can do either or, right? But I remember reading or writing something down as I'm listening to him. And I wrote down this. You can't talk about Jesus the way he is talking about him unless you know him. I was blown away by just that simple truth. See, we want to be able to present the God of Scripture and Jesus the Savior as the one we know, not the one that's in a book. We don't want to talk about him as somebody that we've heard about. We want to talk about him as the one who opened the door and took us out of darkness and showed us what it was to live in the light. We want to talk about him as that one who's changed us, and we are, we are never going to be the same. This is what Paul is trying to get across to us. How does that take place? Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, with all of these things that he has said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Can you say that that, when you talk to people, is that your testimony even if you don't say it in such a way, is that obvious to the person who hears? I'm a new creation. I don't want to spend a lot of time telling you about my past. My past is my past. It's dead to me. If somebody's going through a, a particular problem that my past might help them to understand, hey, you're not alone. I've been there. Great. Use your past. Don't glory in it. Basically say, man, that was the pigsty I used to live in. There was nothing but death there. So 
God showed me I needed to leave it, and I did, and I've never looked back. So you do the same. Leave it at that. Start talking about the life that's happened after that, not the death that was there. All things become new. Now, all things are of God. He's the one who is the creator of all things. This is the one who has reconciled us to himself. How did he do that? Through Jesus Christ. And then he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. The people that God brings to you. What's your message? I want you to be reconciled. In fact, he says that right there in the next verse. Now then, we are ambassadors. Did we read that in Proverbs? The messenger and the ambassador. The messenger that brings bad news versus the ambassador that brings good news. Make sure that we understand what he says with this because the, the wording is important for us to recognize. We know what ambassadors are, right? The ambassador is the person that goes to another country and says, I'm here representing my government. In this case, your government is a kingdom ruled by a king. A king who is not someone you don't know, but a king who loved you enough to die for you. You're the one who is a representative of that kingdom. Ambassadors. So when he says this, we are ambassadors for Jesus. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on his behalf, be reconciled to God. What an amazing thing. Be reconciled. What is our ministry wrapped up into one simple message? Why do we do what we do? So that to any person that I am able to look at face to face, I'm able to say to them, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He loves you and he died for you on a cross. Paid for every sin that you would ever commit or ever will, that you could be reconciled to him. I have nothing else that I can tell you that's of any importance. I can tell you a lot of things that are along the lines of that, maybe kind of help put some flesh on the bones of that truth. But reconciliation, that means that you are distant and separated from him, but you can be made whole. You can be reconciled. All right? So we are pleading. It is though we plead. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for, here's why, he made him, the father made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us or to be an offering that we, as a result of that, could become right before God in him, the righteousness of God, the acceptable condition in the person of Jesus that as we come to God, reconciled. We have that first and foremost, and we are to pass that along to others. Look, people are leaving the church at an alarming rate. I have to ask the question, how much of that is on the church? Because we are not willing to be honest with them about what needs to be done. We try to make our belief overly simplistic. We don't tell people of consequence. We don't tell them of the righteousness of God. It's easier to tell them the things that they want to hear because it won't get them. We're so afraid of offending them. Isn't it better to offend them, perhaps? Because if you don't, they certainly aren't going to come to an understanding if they are wayward. Look, nobody likes to hear it. What did Paul say? Look, the preaching of the cross is what? Yeah, and it's an offense to those who are perishing. 
Okay, nothing has changed since his time. Can we agree on that? Great. Now, that doesn't mean that our message is to be delivered in an offensive way. Our message is going to offend. It's going to hurt feelings, perhaps, because you're going to be told you're not good enough to get to heaven. Good. Somebody needs to tell you that. There's a way to say it that is very important. We want to make sure that as we say the things that we say, that they're said in such a way that they represent the one for whom we are the ambassador. Is this how he would say it? People back home hear me say it all the time, and I'll close with this because it's time. People back home hear me say this all the time. How we say what we say is sometimes just as important as what it is that we're saying. I mean that I'll say it a different way. You can be totally truthful, and I use this as the total extremes. We have a guy that does street ministry. Now, if I go and do his job and I take his bullhorn and his sandwich board and say, you're a bunch of dirty sinners and you're going to die and go to hell. Have I told them anything untrue? Do you think it's going to get me invited for Christmas dinner? I can say the exact same thing by saying, hey, you know, I was once just like you. You cut me, I bleed red just like you do. I'm human. I'm prone to fault and all the rest of it. I'm no different than you. Here's what I do know, that even in that condition, God has always loved me. Gave himself on a cross that I could be reconciled to him. And he wants to do the same thing with you because he loves you more than you'll ever know. I've said the exact same thing. Which one of those is offensive and pushes people away versus the one that brings them in? Let me hear more on this. See, this is in the time that we have left on this earth, whatever that may be, whether it's our lifetimes or the Lord comes back for us. We have a finite amount of time. People that serve in ministry full-time, the pastors and all the rest of that, most of their time is spent around ministry. They don't have the full-time gig outside in the world. That's where you guys get to go do those things. And that's why what we read or we talked about in the beginning from Ephesians 4, he's given these different people to do these different things. But the church is to come together for the equipping of those saints to do those things of ministry out there. Each one of us have this incredible responsibility and privilege to say, I represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who conquered death, not for himself, but for me. And you can know that too. We preach to you, be reconciled to God. Father, we thank you so much for your word. How grateful we are that it it elaborates on itself. It expands what we read. The things that we read from Solomon, easy to understand. They're both extremes of a particular topic. Your word in particular. When people hear it, you have communicated. Some will hear it, some will be changed. Others will neglect it, others will reject it, others will hate it. It is not for us to be concerned with such things. You are asking us to be concerned that we handle the word rightly and those that you send to us, that we can minister to them, that we minister them the truth. Not deceitfully, not peddling your word, but being careful to, to say it and to teach it accurately because the people hearing it are loved of you in ways we don't even begin to grasp. We thank you that you have privileged us to serve you in this way. May we do so in a way that is pleasing to you. We give to you all thanks and praise. I thank you for these people here, those that you have called to ministry. God, would you encourage them? Would you fill them to overflowing? Would you make them effective for your use? As they see themselves maybe in a new way, as ambassadors. God, would you use them in this world that is dying and hurting every single day. People are without hope, and we have it in ways that we can't even begin to express. 
So we ask, Lord, use us in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.